programs of the Jerusalem Channel are made possible by viewer support. Thank you for watching. How many times have you been confronted by someone who asked whether you've been saved? And how did you answer? You might have responded with absolute confidence. But then again, what does it really mean to be born again, to be saved? Especially when there's so much deception, even sorcery, infiltrating the church today. The Bible gives us some clear answers, and that's what I'll be exploring today. Hello, I'm Christine Dark. A.W. Tozer was a preacher and prolific author with an ability to make believers face ourselves in the light of God's Word. In one of his books, Tozer made a comment that really resonated recently with me. He said the teaching of salvation without repentance has lowered the moral standards of the church and produced a multitude of deceived churchgoers who somehow erroneously believe they're saved, when in fact they're still in chains of sin. Tozer said it's shocking to see truly unrepentant sinners actually seeking the deeper life in spiritual conferences. Tozer died in 1966, but his words are amazingly relevant still. Our altars are sometimes filled with people crying with Simon the sorcerer, give me this power. In Acts chapter 8, Simon the sorcerer claimed to be a follower of Jesus, but many scholars believe he wasn't genuine. No doubt the church will always be infiltrated with Judases and Simons. The wheat and the tares will grow up together, the Bible says, but great discernment is needed. If Jesus said, the poor you will always have with you, the same might be said of the con artist. Well, in Acts 8, starting with verse 9, there was a man named Simon who had practiced sorcery in Samaria, and he had, had amazed all the people. Some translations say he had bewitched the people. Well, he boasted that he was someone great, and everybody gave him their attention, saying, this man is the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But then Philip the evangelist came to town and as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and in the name of Jesus the Messiah, they were baptized, both men and women. And the text says that Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles of Philip. Now, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent the apostles, Peter and John, to Samaria. And when they arrived, they prayed for the new believers to receive the Holy Spirit. Peter and John placed their hands on the believers, and they received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw that the Spirit was given by the laying on of the apostles' hands, 
he offered them money and said, give me also this power and authority so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Well, Peter was indignant. He said, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. Peter said, you have no part, you have no share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having even had such a thought in your heart. Peter said, for I perceive that you are full of bitterness and you're still a captive to sin. Then Simon the sorcerer answered, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. So in this short sketch in the Bible, we learn many principles of God. First of all, that Philip the evangelist preached Christ, not himself. You see, Simon had been preaching himself. As a wizard, he was surnamed Magus, named after magical arts. So Simon Magus boasted that he was someone great. Right there, that's a red flag because false teachers always seek their own glory and not the Lord's glory. The local people had been duped. About Simon, they had said, this man is the great power of God. And people today can still be so easily deceived. But hallelujah, these same people were brought to a saving knowledge of the true great power of God. And that's Yeshua, Jesus the Messiah. And how did it happen? Through the straightforward preaching of Philip, who is our example of a New Testament evangelist because he demonstrated the gospel with signs and wonders. Now think with me for a moment, how great was this revival in Acts chapter eight, because Philip was actually fulfilling prophecy by preaching in Samaria, because Jesus had predicted in Acts 1, 8, that the gospel would be preached first in Jerusalem and then to Judea and Samaria, and after that to the very ends of the earth. Following the martyrdom of Stephen, the church in Jerusalem was severely persecuted and this caused the disciples to be dispersed to Samaria. Saul, who was later to become the Apostle Paul, was the ringleader of the persecution. And it led to the dispersion of the church, as I said, throughout Judea and Samaria, although the apostles remained in Jerusalem. But those believers who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word, including Philip the evangelist. And who was this wonder worker, Philip? He was not Philip, one of the Lord's apostles, but he was one of the outstanding seven men, deacons, who were selected to help the needy widows in Acts chapter 6 and verse 5. Now, to me, it's fascinating that Philip spread the gospel in Samaria because the Jews and Samaritans were historically full of prejudice against one another. Yet the preaching of the gospel brought both Jews and Samaritans into fellowship in a way that no other religion ever could. Philip's preaching was the first preaching of the gospel to those who were not fully Jews because Samaritans were considered half-breeds by the Jews and they were disdained by most Jews. In fact, at one point earlier in his 
career as a disciple, John the Apostle wanted to call down fire on the Samaritans. Now here we see him ministering to them. You see, as we grow and mature in the Lord, we ideally mellow and become more open and loving and forgiving. Anyway, Peter and John decided to do follow-up ministry by visiting the action and imparting the gift of the Holy Spirit to the Samaritans. Even though John had asked the Lord if he could call down fire like Elijah upon the Samaritans to destroy them, now he was older and wiser and he dealt with the racial prejudice in his heart. The beguiled Samaritans had been astonished at first at Simon's magic show, but now they were introduced to the Savior by a real preacher. Simon conjured tricks, but Philip healed people and cast out demons from them, and the demons came out with loud shrieks. The paralyzed and the lame were healed. And Acts 8 and verse 8 says that there was great rejoicing in that city. Philip, you see, was the real deal, but Simon Magus was a con artist. Even today, street magicians are often featured on TV, and they do astonish people and gain their admiration. And although they surely want to make money from their TV acts, most magicians may not necessarily be trying to deceive people into a religious sect. But false religious teachers seek to draw people after themselves rather than truly enlightening them and converting sinners. Simon was not just an entertainer, but he was also a false prophet. Because I found this very fascinating in my research. The Syriac version of the New Testament doesn't just say that Simon Magus put himself forward as someone great, but it renders the verse ominously saying that he said, I am that great one. Wow, that was a claim actually to be the Messiah whom Moses had predicted, a prophet like unto himself, who would come. And of course, that prophecy of Moses was fulfilled in Jesus. And sadly, today there are many chameleons in the church for one reason or another. But when the apostles Peter and John laid hands on the Samaritan converts, there was a visible manifestation that provoked Simon to offer money for power. Something visibly happened that made Simon, Simon grasp for this power. Apparently, the people spoke in tongues. The text doesn't exactly say so, but speaking in supernatural tongues is usually the manifestation that happens when people are filled with the Holy Spirit. Something had happened, and now the Apostle Peter had the gift of the discerning of spirits. We see that in his rebuke to Simon. This gift of the Holy Spirit enables us to discern a person's spirit, to know whether or not they're genuinely from God. You see, Peter observed that Simon was poisoned by envy and bitterness. Simon's heart was unchanged. He was still apparently an unregenerate sinner. Peter discerned that Simon couldn't be a true follower of the cross, but that in his heart of hearts, he still wanted to be a miracle worker by hook or by crook. Simon Magus had attached himself to the apostolic band just to gain more power. 
And if you're in the ministry today, you have to be careful who tries to attach themselves to you. Well, today, if you go to a dictionary, Simon's besetting sin is memorialized in the word simony. According to the dictionary, simony means to try to make profit out of sacred things or to try to pay for position and influence in the church. So Simon Magus presumed that he could purchase apostolic powers. By the way, the name Simon was a typical Jewish name. In fact, the same name as Simon Peters. Two different characters, though. But in their day, there were many Jews who traded on the mysterious prestige of their race and their attachment and proximity to God. Others who claimed supernatural power and exercise incantations include another sorcerer in the Bible, Edomus. He's mentioned in Acts chapter 13 and verse 6. He opposed the Apostle Paul in Cyprus. And vagabond Jews who were exorcists at Ephesus are also mentioned in Acts chapter 19 and verse 13. These itinerant Jews were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest. These sons of Sceva attempted to work wonders by the name of Jesus, but without really knowing the Lord. And what happened? A demon-possessed man jumped on them and overpowered all seven of them, screaming, Jesus we know and Paul we know, but who are you? And so these seven sons suffered such a beating that they ran out of the house naked. Their clothes were torn off by the demon and bleeding. That's a great lesson for people who try to make somebody else's religious experience their own. Or perhaps for politicians and charlatans who try to use the Lord's name for their own personal gain. Now this passage about Simon the sorcerer in Acts chapter 8 is in the Bible to warn us not to be naive. You see, as an evangelist, I'm always hoping for the best, that a professing convert will truly be genuine and will go forward with God, onwards and upward. The account indicates that Simon Magus didn't respond directly, though, to the Apostle Peter's rebuke. Sadly, not all who claim to be converted turn out to be genuine. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon gave a colorful example. He said, fish sometimes leap out of the water with great energy, but it would be foolish to conclude that they've left the water for good. And so when habitual sinners make a sudden leap at religion, they could soon be back again in their own ways. Let's hope for the best, but let's not commend them too soon. And so what about the fact clearly recorded here in Acts 8 that Simon believed Philip's preaching and was baptized? Again, as an evangelist, I want to believe that all who respond and are baptized will be saved and that I'll meet them again one day in heaven. But Bible scholars say the degree of Simon's sincerity, even in submitting to baptism, needs careful consideration. Jesus taught that when the seed of God's word is sown, it falls on all sorts of ground. When the ground, when the heart is shallow or rocky, there's not much hope that the seed will be able to take deep root and survive. 
You see, at first, Simon may have sincerely decided to follow the way of the Lord, and many hoped to follow him. But soon he yielded, as many do, to the pull of his old lifestyle, hoping that a new fortune could be made out of this mysterious Holy Spirit power. At the end of the day, true discipleship is a permanent change of heart. We have to be radically born again. Apparently, Simon Magus believed without being fully converted. You see, James 2.19 says, even the demons believe in Jesus, but they tremble. So just believing is not enough. Had he truly counted the cost of discipleship that he'd have to humble himself? I once heard Billy Graham say that if he had his life to live over as an evangelist, he would emphasize the cost of discipleship in his preaching. Well, scholars say the bottom line is that Simon Magus still wanted to be someone great. But what did Jesus teach? He said, he that would be great among you, let him be your servant. And he that exalts himself shall be abased and so forth. Does the ministry hold the same temptations for fame and fortune today? I believe it does for many. And the temptation is to use God's holy word as some sort of incantation for blessings without true repentance and holiness. The gospel of this Bible demands that we live a holy life. The whole story of Simon is really scary and should give us much pause for thought. You see, outwardly, he was baptized. Outwardly, he was a card-carrying member of the church, but inwardly, he was covetous. And selfish ambition he was full of, and that's a great danger. We should examine ourselves from time to time to see if any inordinate ambition is in our hearts. We must be ambitious for the Lord, but not ambitious for our own power. Power over men rather than power with God is a great temptation. Simon's hypocrisy and covetousness were detected because the Holy Spirit fell upon the people and whenever the Holy Spirit moves, wickedness is exposed. Notice how the Apostle Peter dealt with the situation. He promptly rebuked Simon but also gave him opportunity to repent. You know, when Peter rebuked him and said, your money perish with you. I think it's amazing and part of the mercy of God that Simon didn't drop dead on the spot. Why do I say that? Because only a few chapters back in Acts chapter 5, Peter had also spoken very sternly to a couple, Ananias and Sapphira, concerning a money issue. And they both had dropped dead at Peter's rebuke. And no space was given them for repentance. But Simon was given the grace of space to repent. And Peter's rebuke when he said, you have no part, you have no share in this ministry, reminded me of Nehemiah's withering rebuke when he was rebuilding the walls of this holy city in the Old Testament. Mockers came to taunt him. But in Nehemiah 2.20, he rebuked the mockers saying, you have no portion, you have no right or a memorial in the city Jerusalem. So what was the cure for covetousness that Peter prescribed to Simon the sorcerer? 
repentance and prayer, asking God for forgiveness for the wrong attitude in his heart. And I have no doubt that God would have forgiven. However, Simon only asked Peter in sort of a superstitious way to pray for him against the consequences. There's no record here that Simon actually himself repented after the rebuke and that he'd had a change of heart. It's interesting that Simon the sorcerer was the first known heretic in the church. Traditions about him appear in anti-heretical writings of the church fathers, including Arrhenius and Justin Martyr. They regarded him as a formidable sorcerer and the father of all heresies. And so we should pay careful attention to the story to find the elements of future heresies, even today. Mainly the fact that wonder workers and miracles don't necessarily prove that a man comes from God. You see, in the future, the Antichrist and his false prophet will do signs and wonders so that even the elect, it says, if it's possible, will be deceived. Simon, in that sense, Simon Magus is a type of the Antichrist and a type of the false prophet. He astonished the crowds, but Philip, the evangelist, healed the crowds. One was an imposter, the other genuine. Philip preached Christ, and that was the big difference. Preaching Messiah separates the men from the boys, so to speak, and it separates the genuine from the counterfeit. Heretics are often too willing to fleece God's sheep. And there are men naming the name of Jesus who seem to have an inordinate confidence in finances. And many are undoubtedly wolves in sheep's clothing. But Peter and John had the courage to unmask a peddler. There's no telling what harm Simon Magus might have done in the early budding church if he had been left unchallenged to his own devices. The account seems to say good riddance to him because the book of Acts moves on without Simon Magus moving on with the apostles. Peter and John returned to Jerusalem and they preached the gospel in many Samaritan villages along the way. And meanwhile, an angel of the Lord brought Philip's Samaritan campaign to a sudden conclusion with directions for Philip to go down to Gaza, where along the way, he baptized an Ethiopian. Philip's obedience to leave a successful gospel campaign to go preach to one individual opened the gospel to the entire nation of Ethiopia because the Ethiopian was an official. He was the treasurer of Queen Candace of Ethiopia. Well, if you Google Simon Magus, you'll find many famous paintings on this theme with the titles, The Fall of Simon Magus, meaning that the majority of the scholars and artisans throughout the ages present him as one who fell from grace. But in this program, I do have to say carefully that not all Bible scholars condemn Simon Magus. So to give a balanced view, we will ask the scriptures to speak. Many strongly deny that he was converted. However, St. Luke, who is the author of the book of Acts, wrote simply without casting aspersions that Simon also believed and was baptized. That's the record. It's often been said that we'll be surprised to see who made it to heaven by God's grace 
and who won't be there. And do we want to complicate the gospel? Doesn't the Bible say in Romans 10, 9, that if you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you shall be saved. While there may be many fanciful traditions concerning Simon Magus outside of the Bible, the indication of the scripture on its face is that Simon believed, but his heart was not yet right. So he's an example of how fallen and weak believers can be restored. Are we not all works in progress by God's grace? He was told by Peter in Acts 8.22 to repent and to pray, seeking forgiveness. So what can we profit from this Bible episode? First of all, we can profit by learning that financial profits should never be a motive for serving God. Simon's blasphemous low level of thinking that he could make money off of the Holy Spirit reveals how quickly a person can fall into the ways of the world if we're not careful and spiritually attuned. Secondly, we can learn that when a believer sins, he or she doesn't need to be baptized again, but needs simply to repent, pray, and confess our sins. This is what 1 John 1, 9 teaches. It says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and he's just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the third thing we can learn is that people who come out of the occult and attach themselves to the ministry need careful discipleship and genuine renewal of their minds and regeneration of their spirits. Simon Magus was ambitious for a jump start to the honor of an apostle. Many in the occult have controlled others for years, so it's hard for them to humble themselves and live the crucified life as a disciple of Jesus. And so I hope this Bible study has been helpful. And if you have been dabbling in the occult, we advise you to come out of spiritual darkness and cling to the light of the living Savior and learn His ways from His Holy Spirit. And surely to call upon the name of Yeshua HaMashiach, that's Jesus the Lord, Jesus Christ, call upon His name while it's yet time. For the Bible does promise, no matter what your background, whether you were a sorcerer or a great sinner, that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And in the meantime, please visit our website for more end-time teaching at exploits.tv. And I invite you to sign up when you visit our website for our free color newsletter, Exploits. I'd love to send you a copy. Until next time, contending for the faith, I'm Christine Dark, also reminding you to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Shalom. Have you ever dreamed to do something but felt you just weren't gifted to accomplish it? If you've been born again by the Spirit of God, you've passed into a dimension of limitless possibilities. The Spirit-filled believer has inside information because the Holy Spirit of God dwells within us and therefore all of His infinite abilities are potentially waiting to be unleashed in our lives. The New Testament, in fact, says the Holy Spirit distributes several gifts within each of us. 
The good news is that when you become a believer in Jesus Christ, new abilities are imparted to us. Although most Bible teachers speak on nine popular gifts, Christine Darg has discovered at least 50 gifts of the Spirit in the Bible that are potentially available to us. To get your copy of 50 Gifts of the Spirit, just visit our Exploits shop at exploits.tv.